Chapter 10, Part 1 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mario Pineda. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 10, Part 1 Manufactures. In a general way, it may safely be predicted that the nation which has the most varied industry is likely, all other things being equal, to be the most prosperous, powerful, and contented. Agriculture, though the first and most essential of all callings, is still far from yielding the best results from a commercial and industrial point of view. England's Supremacy. Genes. Labor is discovered to be the grand conqueror, enriching and building up nations more surely than the greatest battles, says Channing. Of this truth, the Republic is proof conclusive, for she has become the greatest manufacturing nation of the world by labor, not by luck. What men call luck is the prerogative of valiant souls. Since the earliest period in their history, the American people have devoted great attention to and manifested unusual aptitude for manufactures. The first colonists fully realized their importance, and so energetically did they devote themselves to their development that by 1670, when the population numbered less than 200,000, their progress had already begun to excite the jealousy of the modern country. Despite the restrictions which Great Britain placed upon the colonial trade, the manufacture and commerce of America grew rapidly. The moral cost at which the advance was made, however, was very great. It may be gauged by the fact, certified by the Honorable David A. Wells, that the colonists were a nation of lawbreakers. Nine-tenths of the colonial merchants were smugglers. One quarter of the whole number of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were bred to the contraband trade. John Hancock was the prince of contraband traders, and, with John Adams as his consul, was on trial before the Admiralty Court in Boston at the exact hour of the shedding of blood at Lexington to answer for half a million dollars penalties alleged to have been by him incurred as a smuggler. The evils and sufferings caused by the narrow policy of the home government can be but vaguely conceived even in view of this wholesale demoralization of a generous and otherwise law-abiding people. The efforts of the British to cripple the industries of America did not end, as might be supposed, with the success of the revolution. Transatlantic manufacturers sought to continue their repressive measures long after independence was achieved, and their methods, the procedure, took many a curious turn. Bishop, the historian of American industry, says, It was supposed to be an object worth large sacrifices on the part of the English manufacturers to break down the formidable rivalship of growing but immature manufacturers in America by means of heavy consignments of goods to be disposed of at auction and upon the most liberal credits to the merchants. That this policy had the approval of eminent British statesmen is shown by the remarkable language of Mr. Brougham in Parliament soon after the peace, 1815, when he declared, in reference to the losses sustained by English manufacturers in these transactions, that it was even worthwhile to incur a loss upon the first exportation in order by the glut to stifle in the cradle these rising manufacturers in the United States, which the war had forced into existence contrary to the natural curse of things. All this is in the past, and is only referred to as essential to a proper understanding of the subject under review. 
Britain did what she did because in those days nobody knew any better, as explained in the chapter upon occupations. The steady nature of the progress of American manufacturers is indicated by the ever-increasing ratio of manufacturers to population. This is shown by Mulhall as follows. Product per inhabitant. 1830, 1.8 pounds sterling. 1840, 5.7. 1850, 9.1. 1860, 12.2. 1870, 21.2. 1880, 22. An increase of more than 10 times the products per inhabitant in 50 years. It is interesting to note that as the country became more densely settled, the importance of manufacturers relative to agriculture increased. In 1850, the capital invested in manufacturers was only 8% of that in agriculture. In 1860, it was 13%. In 1870, 19%. And in 1880, it reached 23%, or nearly one-fourth that of agriculture. In 1870, the value of the products of manufactured less than of raw materials was 71% of the value of agricultural products, while in 1880 the proportion had risen to 89%. So that great as the growth of agriculture has been in America and the world has never before seen the like, that of manufacturers has been even greater. No statement in this book will probably cause so much surprise as that the young republic and not Great Britain is today the greatest manufacturing nation of the world, for she is generally credited with being great only in agriculture. The annual product of each operative has advanced in value from $1,100, 220 sterling in 1850, to $2,015, 403 sterling in 1880, ever so largely due to improvements in methods of machinery. This cause, joined to the increase in number of workers, resulted in an advance of total manufacturers from $1,060,000,000 million million sterling in 1850 to $5,560,000,000 million, $1 million million sterling in 1880, an increase of nearly 600% in 30 years. During the same period, the increase of British manufacture was little more than 100%. Their total in 1880 was but $4,055,000,000, sterling. An industry which has attained gigantic proportions during the 50 years under review is that of flouring and greased mills. Indeed, if we judge by value of products, this is the foremost industry of the United States, for the product of 1880 exceeded $500,000,000, sterling. The capital invested in this industry was $177,400,000, nearly $36 million sterling, there being in operation no fewer than 24,000 flouring and grist mills with a daily capacity of 5 million bushels, sufficient, if need be, to grind flour for not only the 50 millions of Americans, but for 300 million Europeans, who annually consume 1,347,000,000 bushels. The value added to the food by milling was 13% of the cost of the grain. During the decade ending 1880, the capital employed in this industry increased 46%. The grain dealt with increased 47%. Wages increased 49%. The number of hands employed, however, diminished slightly, a circumstance due to improvements in machinery. This is a growing characteristic of all American industries. The drudgery is even being delegated to dump machines, while the brain and muscle of men are directed into higher channels. 
The industry next in importance, judged by value of product, is slaughtering and meat packing. Though of comparatively recent origin, this industry has attained enormous proportions. The capital employed in 1880 was about 10 million sterling, furnishing employment to more than 27,000 hands whose wages amounted to $10,500,000, $2,100,000 sterling, an average of nearly $400, or 80 sterling each. The beefs slaughtered number 1,700,000, sheep 2,200,000, hogs 16 millions. This was enough to give every man, woman, and child in America and Great Britain half a pound of meat thrice a week for a year. That this industry is to undergo vast developments is shown by the attention paid to the pastoral interests. Farming stock increased 33% all round during the 10 years ending in 1880. There were in that year nearly 150 million cows, sheep, and hogs in the United States. It is at Chicago that the traveler sees the murderer's work going on upon the grandest scale, for in 1880, five and three-quarter million pigs were turned into pork and half a million cattle packed. So rapidly is this industry increasing that in Chicago alone, 1,180,900 cattle were killed last year. The perfection of the machinery employed is illustrated by the claim Chicagoans make for it this that you can see a living hog driven into the machine at one end and the hams from it safely delivered at the other end before the squeal of the animal is out of your ears. But as Matthew Arnold said when asked to see this verified, or at least the foundation upon which the story rests, why should I see pigs killed? Why should I hear pigs squeal? He declined. My readers can therefore see, if so inclined, one of the sights which a distinguished traveler missed, which is ever a great advantage. The iron and steel industries rank next in importance, the product for 1883 being valued at $400 million, 80 million sterling. The production of pig iron has increased at a prodigious rate. The output for 1883 was 5.25 million tons, more than 13 times the quantity produced in 1840. With this unparalleled increase in quantity, there has gone a corresponding improvement in quality, which has placed American iron and steel on a par with the best produced by the Iron King, Great Britain. In 1870, the United States was much below France or Germany as regards the manufacture of steel. Ten years later, it produced more than these countries together. America now makes one-fifth of the iron and one-fourth of the steel of the world, and is second only to Great Britain. In steel, America will probably lead the world in 1890, as may be seen from the following summary. 1850, Great Britain, 49,000 tons. United States, no data. Germany, 22,000 tons. France, no data. 1870, Great Britain, 245,000 tons. United States, 64,000. Germany, 170,000. France, 94,000. 1881, Great Britain, 1,780,000 tons, United States 1,374,000 tons, Germany 865,000, France 418,000. Probably the most rapid development of an industry that the world has ever seen is that of Bessemer steel in America. As the foregoing table shows, there were only 64,000 tons of all kinds of steel made in 1870. Of these, only 40,000 tons was Bessemer. Twelve years later, 1882, the product was 1,250,000 tons. This is advancing not by leaps or bounds, 
It is one grand rush, a rush without pause, which has made America the greatest manufacturer of a similar steel in the world. Last year, the Republic made 1,373,513 tons, which was 74,000 tons more than Great Britain made. In steel rails, her superiority is more marked. The output of Great Britain was 647,000 tons against 954,000 made in the United States. Pennsylvania wears the iron crown, nearly one-half of capital invested being there, while 46% of the total product is contributed by it. Ohio ranks second, New York follows, with Illinois closely treading on her heels. The future outlook for the iron and steel industries of America is highly encouraging, for ironstone in greater or less quantities has been discovered in most of the newly opened states of the West. The production of iron was commenced between 1870 and 1880 in no less than six states, Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, Oregon, and Texas, and in New Hampshire in the east. These infant industries are rapidly developing, but a great increase of population must take place near them before the aggregate product can reach a high figure. Pennsylvania will probably increase her iron and steel product in the future as fast as these new districts. Closely following the iron and steel manufacturers comes the lumber trade, an industry peculiarly American. Since 1850, the value of annual product has increased fourfold, the capital employed having advanced in nearly the same ratio. In 1880, this industry gave employment to 148,000 hands who received wages to the amount of nearly $32 million, $6,400,000 sterling. The product was worth $233,268,729.46,653,745 sterling. The principal seat of this industry is Michigan, a region which 50 years ago had not been invaded by the woodcutter. The capital invested in the lumber trade in that state was nearly $40 million in 1880, or more than one-fifth of the total lumber investment of the country. The amount of superior timber cut in 1880 in the three principal lumbering states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, was 7,500,000,000 feet. This is exclusive of many millions of railroad ties, staves, and sets of headings out of inferior wood. In the southern states, more than 1,500,000,000 feet of pine were cut in 1880, while it was estimated that there remained standing not less than 216,000,000,000 feet. But full statistics of the enormous quantities of wood available in the various states are unattainable. Texas is said to have 21 billion feet of lovely pine, of which 61 and a half million feet were cut during 1880. At the present rate of cutting, the timber area of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota will last, along with for growth, from 20 to 25 years, but that of the South, which is four times as great, is said to be ample for an indefinite period. Enormous forests are being opened in Washington Territory, Oregon, and Northern California. The cutting of trees may be conducted more methodically in the future than in the past, but there is little danger of the supply diminishing. There are vast regions in America where the raising of timber is the only cultivation possible, and other places where trees can be more profitable ground than anything else. This will always remain so, so that there need be no apprehension either that the forests will be totally destroyed or that the supply of merchantable lumber will fail. The quality and variety of American woods are almost too well known to need emphasis. The ash, cherry maple, mahogany, walnut, and many other valuable varieties are exported to Europe 
frequently cut and shaped, ready to be put together as finished work. The wealth of America's forests is illustrated by the collection of native woods in the New York Museum of Natural History, which comprises more than 400 different varieties. The wealth of the Republic would be but partially estimated if, upon Uncle Sam's great estate, we omitted the growing timber, from the live oak of southern Florida up to the huge pine, hewn on, not Norwegian, but northwestern hills. Foundry and machine shop products rank next in value. The value placed on these is more than $214 million, 42,800,000 sterling, so that the value of the iron industries of America, as indicated above, ought to be increased by this sum. Cotton manufacturers have increased at a great rate in many lands, but nowhere so rapidly as in America. Those of England in 1880 were nearly six times greater than in 1830. Those in America were 18 and a half times greater. The competition of modern and child lands in this important industry is briefly shown by the following table, which also shows the small amount consumed by other countries. Consumption of cotton in million pounds. 1830. Great Britain, 250. United States, 52. Germany, 56. France, 87. Various, 162. Total, 607. 1840. Great Britain, 454. United States, 135. Germany, 120. France, 110. Various, 231. Total, 1,150 million pounds. 1860. Great Britain, 1,140. United States, 410. Germany, 220. France, 215. Various, 286. Total, 2,271 million pounds. 1870. Great Britain, 1,101. United States, 530. Germany, 260. France, 250. Various, 239. Total, 2,380 million pounds. 1880. Great Britain, 1,404. United States, 961. Germany, 390. France, 340. Various, 649. Total, 3,744 million pounds. It appears from the above that the cotton industries of America have increased nearly three times as fast as those of the rest of the world. The modern land still leads, finally, in the race, however. Grand, plucky little racer. One dislikes to see a big overgrown giant chasing you with his seven league boots on, but do not be too much discouraged. He is your own son and boasts no harm. You thought him of what his strain is capable. The prize will still remain in the family. You who love primogeniture so dearly, everyone to his taste, surely cannot grudge your eldest boy anything. At the beginning of the century, although the cotton crop was only 1 77th what it was in 1880, only 2% of it was manufactured at home, as against 31% in 1881. In this, as in many other industries, we see the parent and child land in friendly rivalry absorbing the great bulk and leaving the rest of the world nowhere in the race. Thus, the two nations combined take two-thirds of the whole and leave but one-third for the rest of the world. The capital invested in cotton manufacturing in the United States in 1880 was $208 million, 41,600,000 sterling. The number of operatives was 172,554, who received in wages $42 million, 8,400,000 sterling. 
The value of the product exceeded $182 million, nearly $40 million sterling. Compared with the figures of the previous decade, the capital shows 47% increase, number of looms 49% increase, number of operatives 28%, and cotton consumed 58%. It is a noteworthy fact that the American method of cotton manufacture is the most economical of labor in the world. An American operative deals with one-sixth more material than the British operative, one-third more than the German, two and a half times as much as the French or Austrian, and five times as much as the Russian. This may be in part explained by the fact that the proportion of men is greater in American than in European factories, though the superior nature of American machinery is the main cause of difference. The Native American, and even the acclimatized European, is not content to remain in any position which he thinks can be as well or better filled by machine. If there is no such machine in existence, he sets his wits to work and invents one, and the patent laws of the country give him ample protection at a merely nominal cost. This is the chief reason why America produces more per head than any other country. The American woolen industry also has expanded greatly during recent years. Since 1860, it has increased threefold, an increase six times as great as that of Britain, which during the same period was only 57%. In 1880, the United States were hardly behind Britain in product, the total manufacturers being as follows. United Kingdom, 338 million pounds. United States, 320 million pounds. Pounds per inhabitant, United Kingdom, 9.8. United States, 6.6. .6. Value, United Kingdom, 46,100,000 sterling. United States, 43 million. Since 1880, the Republic has no doubt left her parent far in the rear. In 1883-84, about 396 million pounds of wool were consumed in the United States, and 320 million pounds of this was grown at home. The wool production is now about six times greater than it was 25 years ago, and already exportations are assuming important figures. Uncle Sam may be destined soon to clothe as well as to feed his European brother. The capital invested in woolen manufacture in 1880 was about 19 million sterling. The hands employed exceeded 86,000, who received wages to the amount of $26 million, more than 5 million sterling, an average of nearly $300, 60 sterling each. Although between 1870 and 1880 the capital invested increased to 21 and one half percent, the number of establishments decreased 31 percent. As machinery is improved and elaborated, its costs tend to put small capitalists out of the competition and to increase the average size of the manufacturing establishments. That great improvement in machinery took place during the decade is shown by the fact that the value per hand added to the materials by manufacturers increased 17 and one-fourth percent, and that concentration of labor into larger establishments occurred is shown by an increase of 76 and one-half percent in the average capital per establishment, and an increase of 58% in number of hands per establishment. The manufacture of mixed textiles for 1880 reached a value of $66,250,000, $13,250,000 sterling. Silk manufacturers employed capital to the amount of $19,000,000, $3,800,000 sterling, and labor to the amount of 31,000 hands who received $9,146,705, $1,829,341 sterling in wages. 
The net value of materials used was $18,500,000 sterling, and value of the products $34,500,000 sterling. Worsted goods were valued the same year at $33,000,000 $6,600,000 sterling, while hosiery and knit goods reached $29,000,000 $5,800,000 sterling. In the carpet trade, which is of recent origin, we have another example of the concentration of capital and labor in large establishments. Since 1870, the decrease in the number of establishments has been marked. Yet, has the capital nearly doubled, and the product increased 83% in the decade. For 1880, the product was worth $21,750,000 sterling, and consisted of 22 million jars of two-ply ink grains, 9 and 1/2 million jars of tapestry, 4 million jars of Brussels, and half that quantity of Venetian carpets. One is startled to find that more jars of carpet are manufactured in and around the city of Philadelphia alone than in the whole of Great Britain. It is not 20 years since the American imported his carpets, and now he makes more at one point than the greatest European manufacturing nation does in all its territory. Truly, the old lands are fast becoming petty little communities, their populations so small, their products so trifling, in comparison with those of the giant of the West. The manufacture of boots and shoes is one of the oldest and most important industries of America. It is also one of the best developed, developed not simply in regard to size, but in perfection of methods. Here, machinery seems to have reached its culmination. The human hand does little but guide the material from machine to machine, and the hammering, the stamping, the sawing are all done by the tireless energy of steam. It is no fiction to say that men put leather into the machine at one end and it comes out a perfect fitting boot at the other. By means of such a machine, a man can make 300 pairs of boots in a day, and a single factory in Massachusetts turns out as many pairs yearly as 32,000 bootmakers in Paris. In 1880, America had 3,100 of these mechanical St. Crispins making new pedal coverings every four months for 50 million people. The old-fashioned cobbler with last and touching end is as surely doomed to extinction as the New Zealand Maori. Even the small capitalist who is willing to adopt the most approved methods when able finds himself placed hors de combat by his stronger rivals. In 1870, America had 3,151 boot-making establishments, employing 91,702 men. Ten years later, the workmen had increased to 111,152, but the number of establishments had fallen to 1,959, a decrease of nearly 38%. Even yet, machinery continues to be improved. In the decade ending 1880, the increased number of hands was but 21 and one quarter percent, but the increased value of products was 41 and a half percent. The increase of capital was 43 and one quarter percent. How far the concentration of capital is destined to go, no one can foretell. The survival of the fittest means here the survival of the most economical, and that large establishments are more economical than small ones is proved by the non-survival of the latter. It is probable that the only limit to the concentration of labor is that imposed by the capacity of the directing mind which presides over it. End of chapter 10, part 1, Manufactures.